Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, it's Josh. Hi, and it's Joe. And you're about to listen to another great episode of the movies that made me. Uh, just want to give you a heads up. Many of the movies. Occasionally, we'll talk about something that's pretty obscure and has never come out on video. Most of the movies we talk about on the show are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, which is the movie collector's website. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. Physical media, babies. Yes, go to the TrailersFromHell.com website, click the Movies Unlimited banner on the website, and you can buy your favorites from them or go right to MoviesUnlimited.com. Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Movies, movies, movies whole thing is that we'll just we'll just bring people in they can talk about things that are important to them and they won't have to plug their current movie or any of that kind of stuff and and we'll just have a conversation so all you have to do is show up well and somebody says all you have to do is show up yeah which as we all know is the most difficult part of making movies it's showing up (laughs) if you don't show up you can't do anything uh but once you show up so i show up for these podcasts and by golly it's been a lot of fun of course, we make the guests do all the work. So you were you were up all night cramming for this, and we were what? I don't well, know. I was watching screeners. I don't know. About. A very small setup. How do you do that? Is it nanobots? <laughs> it's digital, Joseph. <clears throat> it's ones and zeros. In the old days, you used to have to go into a big studio and you know lots of baffles and. I guess the difference in the old days is if a tape melted, you could pretty much splice it together and just lose a 30 seconds. Now, if something goes wrong with the zeros and ones, all of it just disappears in space. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Yeah, well, we are. This is actually our first of. Uh, That's our first, first of our new show season. of the twenties. Their first show of our third season of the movies that made me. Um, I'm I'm a little. Uh, I mean, I mean, we you know we've we've had some great guests, but <clears throat> I, I don't think Joe or I would would we be here? Would we be would we be such giants in our industry that we could be hosting a podcast like this had we not first gotten into the film industry? Um, and been, but I mean, I, I would not be in the film industry if it weren't for Roger Corman. Um, I really wouldn't. You had such an impact on, uh, an era of film, um, that was, uh, the, the era I grew up on that I've talked a lot about my father taking me off to see all these wildly inappropriate movies from, you know, these, these filmmakers that you gave your, their first shots to. And, um, and, and we're here with Julie as well. Who's, who's, I mean, the two of you. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's a little slice uh, of Hollywood history. All it, it really up in two is. People. I'm trying to think about what I would be doing if you guys had decided to go into another line of work. 
Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Well, there's Literally, a lot of people in Hollywood who've been doing something different. That's yes, sure. there would. And imagine what movies would be. But it, it is such an honor to, uh, I want to say have you here, but we have, we have come to you. We're in your offices. Um, I'll try to focus entirely on you and not look at all the amazing stuff here. Although I, I will ask you, even though we don't do interviews, I want to ask you at one point about the intruder. I have a question, but, um, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Well, I don't think we'd be here today if it hadn't been Joe Dante's showing up in the trailer department and going on to fame and glory. I owe it all to caged heat. That's right. (laughs) Um, uh, but anyway, th- thank you for coming on. This is a, a real honor, Julie, Roger. Well, be happy to sort of roam around with these various films that had some meaning to us at some time. Maybe, yeah, maybe was, still having meaning. Well, wonderful. Yeah, that was kind of the, the thing. We were like, whatever you guys want to discuss. So, Well, when obviously film going, you know, uh, in when you, when you were younger, in the, in the 30s, I guess it would have been. Um, what, what was... What was what was the average trip to the movies like? Was did you did you go with your family? Did you go on your own? Did you go to double bills? Did you? I mean, you're, you're in where in Connecticut? Uh, I was born in Detroit, but uh, moved to California when I was very young. And there were two ways to go to the movies. Sometimes with my parents, and generally on Saturday afternoons, my friends and I would go to see the matinees on Saturday. I remember one of the first uh, films I saw, I walked out on, was Mutiny on the Bounty. Murdering Butcher. I've had enough of this bloodship. He's the master of life and death on the quarterdeck above the angels. McCoy, Clue! I'm sick of blood. Bloody backs, bloody faces. Why are you doing your eyes? Come out on this ship. We'll be men again if we hang for it. Can you me adrift? 3,500 miles from a port of coal? You're sending me to my doom, eh? Well, you're wrong, Christian. I'll take this boat as she floats to England if I must. I'll live to see you, all of you, hanging from the highest yard arm in the British fleet. I thought it was a great film until Clark Gable got whipped and I saw the blood and the whipping and I just got up and walked out of the theater. Oh my, because it was too graphic? It was too graphic. <laughs> <laughs> He's a sensitive child. Yes, yes. Well, that shows up in his work. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my work is a reaction that to makes... Mutiny on the Body. <laughs> that could be. That could be. That's amazing. And, and how about you, Julie? What was your sort of experience growing up going to movies? Well, I grew up in St. Louis and um, went, you know, till I was older <clears throat> with my parents and in sort of thinking back about films that were significant for me, I am trying to figure out what my parents had in mind because my favorite childhood movie was Francis the Talking Mule. Yes, Francis is that kind of a picture, worthy of ranking with the greatest screen comedies of all time. At the preview, the audience laughed loud and long, and the comment cards made us blush with pride. Um, I love the insouciance of the mule and Donald O'Connor is the sidekick in that case. Um, but the same year they took me to see that, they also took me to see one of the most terrifying films that today I have nightmares getting in an elevator. And that was the day the earth stood still. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. 
A large object battling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon, the arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. But the one that really gave me nightmares, they, <clears throat> the year before, Samson and Delilah and another of my childhood favorites, Ma and Pa Kettle. Now, that juxtaposition was, to this day, <laughs> nightmares thinking about Victor Mature bringing down the temple and the pillars and... On Marjorie Main's head. <laughs> <laughs> now, relive the colossal drama of the mightiest colossus that ever lived. Samson and Delilah, the immortal story of the strongest man in all history. A masterpiece of big screen entertainment. This wasn't a double bill, was it? No, I don't think so. <laughs> but I'm just trying to think of what my parents had in mind. I didn't have the option to walk out of the theater, but really, and Samson and Delilah, I, I would have. I mean, the day the earth stood still, the elevator stopping comes you know, too quickly to do anything about its impact. But <clears throat> so anyway, that was my childhood memories of the films that made me. And, and literally to this day, they affect my life. Those films? Yes. Can't get in an elevator without thinking about the day the earth really? still. Really? No. Wow. wow. Probably so many <clears throat> stairs here in the office. <clears throat> yeah, and that explains that. Um, that's fascinating. I mean, I think also there was, you know, I noticed as a kid, which was a little bit later, but but um, there were always kids' films. But I feel like, uh, you know, the majority of content coming your way from Hollywood was not kids' films. So your parents would, every now and then, you know, there'd be a nod towards my existence and we'll go to a kids' movie. But mostly you went to essentially adult films with your parents. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think if you were growing up today, you'd probably see a lot more children's well, films. But, but, but in the, in the, in the day, yeah. you know, an adult film was still probably suitable for a kid. Right. That uh, too. Yeah. And today that's not the case at all. Samson and Delilah suitable for an eight year old. Well, well <laughs> you know, um, if, if it's, if you're afraid of getting your haircut, I guess it's, it's a pretty <laughs> scary movie. Uh, I, I never had that reaction to any DeMille movies because I was usually pretty bored with them. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I too saw the majority of my movies at Saturday matinees. And um, uh, the, the, the bromide was that if you went to the Saturday matinee and you were the first boy or girl in line, you could get in for free at oh, my wow. local theater in, the, in, the, in New, Livingston, New Jersey. Uh, which meant that you could take the quarter that it would ordinarily take you to get in and you could spend candy. it on candy oh. and popcorn mm -hmm. and stuff, which was really cheap at the time. Uh, but if it was an adult movie, like the solid gold Cadillac, I remember it being a movie that I just didn't understand anything that was going on in it. And I spent most of my time um, looking for more money on the floor <laughs> of the theater <laughs> so that I could buy more candy. Or you because... could finance your first film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the first Roger film Corman, I made, maybe so. Staying in character. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the first film that I remember that really impressed me uh, was an English science fiction film I saw in the 30s called Things to Come. We live in interesting, exciting, and anxious times. No 
Don't be too sure of progress. Well, what's going to stop progress nowadays? War. There is war and rumor of war. The unknown aircraft passed over Sea Beach and dropped bombs. I was very much interested in science. I had a chemistry set and I was building model airplanes and so forth. And I had never seen a picture like this before. It was the first science fiction picture I ever saw. And it correctly predicted, being made in the 30s, that there was going to be a Second World War. Mm. But it, it showed the Second World War, but then said the war spread around the entire world and destroyed civilization, and civilization fell into dictatorial barbarism. And at the worst moment of this barbarism, a super futuristic airplane landed, and a very distinguished man came out, and he said he represented a community of scientists who had separated themselves from the rest of the world and we're now prepared to take over and create a rational, scientific-based society. The dictator, of course, objected. There was a big battle. The scientists won. And then you saw what appeared to be the perfect society, totally rational, all based on science, and ending with man's first attempt to put a man in space. And I was just blown away by the <laughs> film. I thought, this, this is just brilliant. And I still remember it, yeah. as with all today's science fiction, with computer graphics and everything, with the limited effects they had at that time. That film still shows, uh, uh, shows up. Yeah, no, it's a great film. And I mean, there's did... some great stuff in it. I mean, the, the montages at the beginning, about the beginning of World War II, and uh, it was directed by William Cameron Menzies, who was a great... Um, I was actually the first production designer, the first person to actually get that title. He did Down by the Wind, and you know he was uh, he did a, a science fiction picture later called Invaders from Mars, which he did on Dollar uh, ninety eight, but has a real dreamlike quality to it that has scared many generations of children. Um, but you know, Things to Come was written by H. G. Wells uh, from his own book, yes. and seen today, it is a little windy. Uh, it, it's a little polemical. There, there's, a, there's a lot of speechifying uh, by Ralph Richardson uh, and Raymond Massey. But um, even so, I mean, as, as it, it's, it's still a pretty remarkable movie. And it is unfortunately not really very well known today. It's not very often revived. I feel like it pops up every now and then. I'm trying to remember if there's a uh, there's an HD version of it floating around somewhere um, that I saw a few years ago. But uh, yeah, it, it sort of, um, doesn't doesn't get the, the love that um, a lot of films from a few years later do. But I, I'm always interested because I remember as a kid going to movies that I look at now, um, you know, and because of all the evolution of effects and so forth, you go back and you go, oh, that looks ridiculous. But they, you believed it then. Yeah. And you were not sitting there going, these are miniatures. Or... Well, you wanted to believe it. That was <clears throat> yeah. the whole thing yeah. about going to the movies was that you wanted to believe that there was really a giant spider going down the street. You yeah. weren't looking for mat lines. You weren't right. looking for places where you could see through it or any of the other mistakes that could have been made. It's because you wanted to believe it because that was the appeal of yeah. going to the movies was creating another world for yourself. Well, I almost feel now when things are hyper real and there's some, you know, and the effects aren't quite working, it's somehow more noticeable than if you're just buying into an artifice. 
uh, which we were doing, you know, as children in those old films, but now everything's sort of photographic. So you actually feel like if this thing doesn't look like it weighs as much as it should, it kind of throws me out of the movie. So I, I love old effects. Uh, well, Roger, you know, when you, when you finally uh, started making films in the early fifties and uh, got involved with doing science fiction, because it was a, a, a genre that you could double bill pictures in drive-ins and horror films were popular. And, and obviously they were all aimed at a, a younger audience. Obviously, the challenges were, how do you create a believable spaceship yeah. out of nothing, you know, and how do you make it look like it's really flying around in space? And when you look back on some of these movies, it's obvious that the, the computer is made up of film reels and that the chairs uh, are, are actually <laughs> barco loungers. And, but yeah. nonetheless, um, the movies themselves have a certain conviction. And a, and a certain purity that, that makes them still work to me. I mean, I, I, think, I think some of the more financially challenged movies of that period are among the best because in order to make up for that, you have to have characters, you have to have plot, you have to have dialogue, uh, and you have to have an attitude. And so, you know, when, I, when, when a picture like War of the Satellites comes on, uh, it, which has minimal effects by the, our beloved Jack Raven, who... Uh, uh, was very nice to me uh, as I was growing up. Um, I, I, it still works for me. Well, War of the Satellites was an example of how we worked at that time. Uh, I had seen on television one night the first Russian Sputnik going up. The next morning at 9 o'clock, I was in Steve Broidy's office, who was the head of uh, Allied Artists, and I said, Steve, if you can give me $75,000, I will have a satellite picture ready to be in the theaters, finished, answer print, everything in 90 days. Fantastic. And he said, done. Oh, he first said, what is your story? I said, I don't have a story. <laughs> he said, that's okay. I'll give you the $75,000. Wow. That's the way we used to function. Uh, we just say, I'd say, here's the idea. He said, I'll give you the money, either he or Arkoff or Nicholson and Nicholson at AIP. Today, you spend the first 90 days drawing up the contract. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I'll, I'll cut this if it's not okay. Do you, do you want to talk for a minute about what you were working on when we got here? Because it connects to that so beautifully. Or is that a secret? Actually, what I'm working on is just what you said. It's the thought of going back to the way I started because I'm working on a couple of projects that are going to take a little while to develop. And I've got nothing really happening at the moment. As a siren keeps going by. <laughs> we may be in the midst of some <laughs> catastrophe here. It's, it's, should we start filming it in case the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I was invited to the Nassau Film Festival in September and the festival was postponed because of the hurricane and pushed back to, uh, to December. Meanwhile, I saw some drone footage of the uh, devastation, and it was far greater than anything I dreamed of. So I thought, I'd like to go back and see if, as an old man, I can do what I did as a young man, move immediately and make a picture. I bought the drone footage hired the cameraman to go back and shoot footage on the ground, then going to the festival, scouted the locations, and 
immediately after this discussion, I'm meeting with a writer, and we hope to be shooting in about a month and a half on a picture tentatively called Crime City, laid in a devastated island in the tropics. Brilliant, brilliant. And that movie will probably be out before this episode drops. <laughs> <laughs> I still have to edit it, so <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, wow. I didn't know you built your office in such a high crime area. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps you awake. <laughs> it's, it's not going on right outside the window, whatever it is, but um, I'll start shooting if it does. Uh, Julie, do you want to go to another film on your... On my list? Yes. Well, you know, the 60s were really about social awareness for my generation who kind of grew up with the 50s mentality of, you know, trying to make everything normal after the Depression and the war. Um, so the films that, that you know, were sort of part of my becoming very aware of these were Rogers the Intruder... Take a good look at him. He's a specialist. He knows exactly how to turn this quiet town into a hell of violence. The Negroes will literally, and I do mean literally, control the South. They are willing to fight down to the last ditch and keep fighting till this thing is over. I didn't know about the intruder. I didn't know Roger when he made right. The Intruder. <clears throat> and by the time I knew Roger, he was making The Wild Angels and The Trip. And there was really no time to go back because yeah. he was in such a furious, uh, single-minded progress forward. Um, I don't remember where I saw it, but I've seen it more than once. And it was particularly significant to me because it was, it was shot in the state where I grew up, which was Missouri, which mm. was a slave state. St. Louis is on the Mason-Dixon line. And although <clears throat> Roger shot in the boot heel near Arkansas, um, it was this kind of mentality about blacks, which was submerged, but very prevalent. I mean, blacks couldn't go to the Howard Johnsons. They couldn't go to the hotels. They sat in the back of the church. Uh, right. And so to take that, as Chuck Beaumont did in The Intruder, to its logical extension, um, with some brilliant acting by real and and non-real actors, um, I was just riveted by it, and uh, you know was very impressed by it. And at the same time, I was seeing films like the one that um, still gives me nightmares. Also, when I think about it, because it it divorced me from reality, was Women in the Dunes. Mm -hmm. So um, I, you know, I had been an English major, so I was very sort of conscious of the the myth of Sisyphus as it pertained to it. Um, <clears throat> the idea of the woman being trapped and the man being trapped with her and what the task is, which eventually leads to this kind of existential, not even a crisis, but attitude of it's never ending. It will go on because that's the way it is. And then uh, Kobo Abe's work went continued to go that way about people trapped in, in situations. So another film, <clears throat> another book he wrote that was made into film was uh, The Box Man, but I think Women in the Dunes is the one. And I think it gives Lawrence of Arabia a run for its money in the treatment of sand. <laughs> <laughs> 
so that um you know for kind of the the other one of that era that i saw that was made earlier was e vitaloni and the you know the after the war and the neorealism this idea of the the young men being trapped and which direction are they going to go and then you know that scene at the end with the train is just like the where are they going Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe kind of a motto for my generation. Sure. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> for all of us these days, I think, <laughs> sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, had you, I should know this again. I say we do no research, but when, when did you and Roger meet? 1964. Oh, okay. So you, you knew him by, by this point. I mean, we're, we're, by the, by point the time of... you see the intruder. Oh yes. Yeah, no, okay. no, I did. And, wh- and where did you meet him? A uh, job interview. Oh, wow. A job, a job interview that, that I understand you didn't get. Well, she actually turned. Yeah, that's, that would be your interpretation. Sure. <laughs> I, I, I didn't say, understand. I would say yeah. that she turned down the job, but she agreed to have dinner with me. So. Oh, wow. Really? Really? So you turned it down. Yeah. Interesting. I, did, I couldn't understand what the job was. So I had, <laughs> I had, I, if somebody asked me what, you know, being Roger's assistant was today, I still couldn't describe it, but I had, um, three job interviews and, and one was Roger and one was the advertising agency and the training program they called it. And one was at the LA times. And so I went to work at the advertising agency. I thought it'd be more fun. And it was. Oh, then, then working for Roger. <laughs> no, they're going, oh. they're going to the LA times. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> it all comes out. Yeah. Um, so actually when I did work with Roger, I stopped in Ireland because my family was Irish. This is now by now 19. 70. And, um, I was on my way to Paris, but I stopped in Ireland cause my family was Irish and Roger was about to shoot von Richthofen and Brown. Um, and then in Roger's own inimitable way, he said, my brother's in England working on the insurance and the production manager hasn't arrived. I wonder if you could just help me out for a couple of days. <laughs> so anyway, um, and those days are Continuing to this day. That, that's right. Just kept walking <laughs> along together. <laughs> um, Roger, I, as long as we're talking about the intruder, I said I wanted to ask. I actually I have, a, I have a good friend who's um, going to be on our show uh, shortly, Blake Masters. He's a great TV writer. Uh, and he actually wrote a paper in college on the intruder. Um, but one of his, his sort of questions is, because it is famously kind of the only movie you ever made that didn't make money, correct? At that time. At that time. In 1960, it got wonderful reviews. Yeah, it's a great Best film. reviews I ever had. Yeah. And the first film I ever made that lost money. However, in around 2000, Bill Shatner was his first film, right. played the lead, and I did a commentary for a DVD. And 40 years after the oh. film came out, we finally got our money back <laughs> off the DVD. Fantastic. Okay, so so your 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 record's spotless now, is it? More or less. Um. Uh. But no, Blake. But I thought it was an interesting question. What What do you think the impact would have been on your career if the film had been a success at the time? Uh, I probably would have changed and uh, done more contemporary films as such. I did go back a little bit with the wild angels and the trip but i moved on and i felt that maybe i was too serious with the intruder despite the more or less acclaim it got uh i felt 
I may have bored the audience. I was giving them a lecture rather than making a motion picture. Mm. So I determined that the way, if I wanted to make a statement, it should be more or less the subtext. The picture should be an entertainment, and first and foremost, it should entertain the audience. And subtextually, if the audience wanted to pick up on any theme or anything I wanted, that was fine, but that was a bonus. And that was more or less the way I worked since right. then. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, I've, I've, yeah, I think um, brain, brainwashing is always more effective than lecturing, I guess. But it's it's a wonderful film, and it must be, Joe, Joe you're in the, how, how long is it? About 82 minutes? That's 80, 82 minutes. Yeah, yeah that, is, that is not that a was film back that when, slows down. That was down back when, to, when movies uh, didn't all run two and a half hours, yes. like they do this year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that is a fast-paced film. I, I never felt for a minute like I was uh, being being lectured by it. It's well, if people haven't seen it, please please seek it out. I, is there a? It has a lot of, of, of science fiction authors in the movie. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Chuck Beaumont, who wrote the script, right. is in the movie playing a teacher. Oh, uh, and um, uh, what's his what's his name? I always forget. He, he's passed away. Uh, he plays a redneck, um, Charles. Um, oh damn! God, I forgot, I forgot his name. It'll hit you to in cut 20 this minutes. piece out. Yes. Well, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but a fantastic film. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, dude, do you want to hit us up with your next uh, one or two? Or? Well, I, I, going back to the 30s, um, I wouldn't say there was one film, but there were, there were a number of gangster films, mm. Public Enemy, Little Caesar. Prohibition had just taken place. The gangsters were fading out as a result, but they were still somewhat contemporary. And this was the time of the depression of rebellion against society. And I think I and many people identified with the gangsters. We right. knew the gangsters were going to lose in the end. Right. We knew that had to be. But at the same time, we went along for the ride right. until the ending. So I liked those pictures in particular. Were but you, then, um, oh, sorry, I didn't think, were you, were you, um, and you knew they were going to lose in the end. Yeah. Were you wise to the fact that that was uh, a Hollywood rule, or did it give you the sense that this was a dead end lifestyle that you thought it was realistic? We knew it was a Hollywood oh, rule. Good. We didn't. We didn't <laughs> know about the haze. Or we didn't right, know right. what the rules were, but we knew that was sort of the rules of the game. Right, and right. we knew that. So and also still... the, the the corporatization of, uh, of of crime when you know, it, which is a subtext in the Frank St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which you made in nineteen sixty seven. You know, one one of the things about the mob and uh, it was that it was it was corporatized. And all, all during, particularly in the fifties, uh, there were lots of movies about how the the mob was being run by corporate, like a corporation. Yeah. And uh, and now our we have a government that's being run like a corporation. It's quite similar. <laughs> yeah. Unlike that corporation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I remember as a kid seeing uh, Angels with Dirty Faces on TV. Oh yeah. Just I don't know. I, I, we hate to spoil the ending, so I won't. But the ending of that movie. 
at, you know, eight or nine was, I think my first introduction to this layers of complexity that, you know, is he breaking down and begging for mercy? Is he doing it for the kid? It's just, it's, it's such a powerful ending. I've seen a hundred, you know, thousands of films more recently made. I don't remember a thing about, but, but the ending of that film uh, stays with me all the time. So, well, it was interesting. Uh, I, I never thought of this before, but actually the heyday of the gangster films were the early thirties, but by the end of the thirties, you suddenly had Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade, and you had the private eye who, uh, who were against the gangsters. Right. So we were coming out of the depression. Uh, times were changing, and I think films or any art form reflect to a large extent the culture of the day. Sure. So when well, you were watching these films, did you, was there any inkling in the back of your mind that this might be something you might want to do? No. Uh, not really. It never occurred to me to pick up a machine gun and shoot up a <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, make a movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't thinking. I, my father was an engineer, and I was uh, planning on being an engineer. But that would bring me to probably the next film that had some significance to me. Uh, uh, I was writing for the Stanford Daily, and uh, I found out that the film critics for the Daily got free passes to all the theaters in Palo Alto. So I thought, well, I'd like to see movies for nothing. And sure. I wrote a sample <laughs> review, and they took me on. And I remember the first official review I uh, wrote was on Western, My Darling Clementine. Shave, please. Well, we sure want to thank you, Mr. Earp. Wyatt Earp. What? You're not by any chance the marshal from Dodge City. Ex-marshal. What are you doing up here? None of your business. Why don't you behave yourself? Go on, get out. Go on back where you are. I'm not leaving till she gets out of town. The first kiss is always the sweetest. From under a broad sombrero. Told you to get out of town and stay out. We're through talking, Marshal. My advice to you is start carrying your gun. That's good advice. Here's Mighty Entertainment that combines the exciting action of reckless pioneer days, the romantic conflicts of men and women who led perilous lives, the lusty humor of those who dared America's frontiers, and the breathtaking beauty of scenes filmed in the magnificence of the great Southwest. In retrospect, really one of the great Westerns. Yes. And I remember being struck particularly, now I was looking at the film, I had to analyze it, and I started to get into it. And I, the structure of the film with uh, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, before the gunfight at the Oak Creek mm -hmm. Canal, uh, uh, Corral, but also the photography, uh, John Ford and his cinematographer, we used to say his cameraman, but now we say cinematographer or director of photography DP, yes. or dictator of whatever. Uh, I thought the photography was so stark, so beautiful in two ways. Every shot was perfectly composed mm. and the lighting had tonality of dark against light. And I began to appreciate the sheer beauty of a black and white film, as well as the drama of the story. I gave it a very good review. 
Uh, some of my later reviews weren't so good, but that one I liked. <laughs> what a great way to start. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was back when there were movies that good to review. Wow. <laughs> Every now and then, you squeak one out, I think. Uh, that's fantastic. I, I also, you know, it occurred to me when you were talking about the um, gangster movies segueing into Private Eyes. It was also, a lot of them were the same actors. Yeah. I think of Bogart, who was always a gangster and then becoming... So it was just, it was just a kind of seamless transition from one side of the law to the other. Uh, yes. He became both Philip Marlowe and Sam Spade. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and all those gangsters were a little bit good and all those detectives were a little bit bad. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. Actually, I was told by a casting director somewhere along the line that when they were casting cops and robbers, they picked the same guys for either uh, side. For either, either side. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> That's uh, interesting. Um, Julie, what do you got for us next? Where are we going? Are we, uh, are what we still I, in the 60s? Hmm. Or are we? Well, yeah, I think we have to stay with the 60s before yes. we get to the 70s. So the right. 60s. So I think for my high school, the book that was, you know, what we were about was Catcher in the Rye. And then from Which college. Which is eluded uh, ever being made into a movie because uh, Salinger wouldn't yeah, let it happen. I know that. Because apparently they made a picture out of... Um, Uncle Wiggily goes to Connecticut, right? Uh, and which uh, it was a sort of a, and they gave it a sort of a sappy title, and it was a romance, and he hated it, and because he hated it, he said, "Okay, no more." No, and so no one has ever made a, a, a movie out of Catcher in the Rye, which I'm sure people have people have beaten down the door trying yeah. to get the rights yeah. to do it, including his son. Uh, but anyway, I think then in, after my college experience, that there's kind of a through line from Catcher in the Rye to. Um, the graduate. Talk with you again. Listen, everybody, I want you all to be quiet. I've got Ben's college yearbook here, and I just want to read you some of the wonderful things about Ben. Hey, there's the award-winning yes. scholar. We're all very proud of you, Ben. How are you, track star? What are you going to do now? I was going to go upstairs for a minute. Oh, I meant with your future. Your life. Well, that's a little hard to say. Because a vision softly creeping. So I remember standing in line to see The Graduate, and it was, if Catcher in the Rye was about everybody's a phony, then, you know, The Graduate plastics. Uh, but it did sort of speak to my time. And the, and the satire of Mike Nichols, I don't know. I really liked it. Yeah, that's an amazing film. I mean, and and it, it's one that I, I still, you know, I watch it every few years, and I'll try to show it to someone who hasn't seen it. And oh, huh? this isn't necessarily... Uh, something a film has to strive for but um it always feels like it was made yesterday the ending <laughs> felt very different in 1967 than when i last saw it was maybe really? five years ago and that when that very enigmatic look on dustin hoffman's face because well, now you know <laughs> exactly. where they're going <laughs> right so um yeah, how, how did that so, play to you the first time you saw it do you think do you remember i i just like was caught up in the exuberance of it and 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 like yes that's right and he's sitting in the room listening to sounds of silence and you know mrs robinson it's like you know i mean i couldn't have thought it and bankrupt is unbelievable and for sure but i, but I mean that last shot yeah that's oh the last shot you, yeah yeah i don't think i got i i don't remember getting quite that take on it of, of really understanding yeah. where they were going as i did later yeah. um as, as Many films that I see later or books that I read later, I like <clears throat> identifying with the older <laughs> older person or looking at it from a different viewpoint, certainly. But
But the other movie, I must confess, and there will, there may be some uh, groans across the table oh, here. Oh, good. Like um, really? Well, while <laughs> Roger was enamored of um, Lawrence of Arabia, I was totally swept away by the sound of music. The hills are alive with the sound of music, with songs they have sung for a thousand years. As I sound your signals, you will step forward and give your names. You, Fraulein, will listen carefully, learn their signals so you can call them when you want them. The celebrated play that delighted the world actually photographed amidst the wondrous beauties of Salzburg, Austria, with Julie Andrews, Academy Award winner for Best Actress of the Year in Walt Disney's Mary Poppins, now in the new and glorious role of Maria. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Totally swept away. I mean, if anything caught, you know, my romantic nature as a teenage girl, Rodgers and Hammerstein. I mean, The King and I, Carousel, Oklahoma. Ah, uh, you know, and my friend's parents used to go to New York and come back with the, you know, with the record albums right. and we play them and pretend to be all the people. And oh my God. And so that was it. The Sound of Music just had a wonderful time. That's all I can say. Is Joe pressing Arabia? a groan? No, no. Oh, okay. I, I, it's a very I long... said across the table. It's oh, across the table. Roger. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lawrence of Arabia. Not so much. So, no, but that's there's no women in it. <laughs> yep. Well, that too. Anyway, Roger may have a comment on Lawrence of Arabia. Perhaps. Well, one of the great things about Lawrence of Arabia, there were no new musical numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. you're, you're you're speaking to my heart, Roger. I have, but do do you have? Are you? I don't like musicals. That said. You have this, there are a few that I love. Do you have any that you... I will come to one, and as a matter of fact, I'll tell oh, you, it's on your tell you right now. Because okay. in general, I don't like musicals. But there was one musical, My Fair Lady, when I saw it, I thought, this is the best musical I have ever seen. The story was, of course, from a George Bernard Shaw yes. uh, a, a, a play, and the music was just unbelievable. Yeah. Almost every song was a hit. And I thought, musicals have really reached a peak with My Fair Lady. How do you do better? And I'm not certain anybody has done any better since. To me, that was the peak of musicals. That, that, I could have danced this all night. Uh, Along yes. came Bill. Yes. What are you talking about? <laughs> on the street where you lived? Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I've said this on the show, so I can back it up. But yeah, that's that's my... Uh, my go-to for my exceptions. There are a few others, but My Fair Lady is just, why is that though? I mean, obviously the music's great. Yeah. Um, do you find, this is a terrible, I think I've said this, do I find over the years, my perception of Henry Higgins changes. I've certainly had times when I thought. Henry Higgins? Henry Higgins, I yeah. Say, not exactly I, a me too, or is he? <laughs> <laughs> what about I'm going to wash that man right out uh, of my hair? That's I a mean, nice song. <laughs> but that's South Pacific. That's a, that's a pretty problematic movie. Well, <laughs> but but I remember, yeah, when we were talking, and when you the mentioned music. the records, my the my music. mother, uh, I grew up with the um, the album of My Fair Lady it had the great uh, Hirschfeld drawing on the cover. Oh, Rex Harrison. Um, okay, uh, yeah, I I liked it too, but not not the, and Hammerstein. That's funny. I wonder why I, there there's a there's a something Freudian in there that someone could get to, I suppose. But <laughs> I'd rather not look Freudian in, in all every yeah. <laughs> I probably don't want to know why I like Roger is something Freudian in everything. Just look at the movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
Well, you had mentioned uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I was going to say two pictures that uh, impressed me, and I think are two of the greatest pictures, of Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia. Mm -hmm. But Sight and Sound, a number of years ago, sent out questionnaires to directors all around the world to name their favorite film. And Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia, for obvious reasons, were chosen by almost everybody. There was one film, however, I chose, which I'll come to as we come to the end okay. of this. I want to hold to a clock. Okay, yes, there. yes. Um, Ever the show. I was the only one who picked that film. They asked me to write an article about oh. it because I was the only one who picked it. But I do believe Citizen Kane and Lawrence of Arabia for the reasons everybody knows, are two of the of the great uh, and significant films. Now, do they? Because um, uh, I'm just I'm wondering how far our, our kinship on these things go with My Fair Lady. That's enough. But do you? I I, I watch Citizen Kane all the time. It's never moved me. Does it? Do you? Do you? Did you or do you have an emotional reaction to it? Do you? It did move me. It did. I, it moved me primarily for the, the arc which is a current word, uh, uh, the arc of Cain's life. Mm -hmm. He starts as just uh, a lucky little kid in Colorado whose family strikes some mineral and is going and goes from uh, nothingness in Colorado to an elite boarding school, a trajectory to become so powerful. And then something within him causes him to be self-destructive and you see the falling back to the end and at the end you go back to the very first scene in the picture so i thought the structure of the film was beautifully laid out as well as all of the actors were good uh orson welles was brilliant as Kane, but so were all the other actors. And the photography was very, very good. Um, it was one of the first uses of very deep focus, right. uh, in which was a fact that uh, uh, the, the lenses were getting better, right. and you were able to, first you had a good cinematographer, and second you had better lenses to work with, so you had a more realistic picture 2D, which began to look almost like 3D. But I'm wondering, but see, those are, those are, it's interesting. Everything you're telling, were you, the first time you saw the film, were you feeling all that? What what, what were you feeling? I was. I I identified with Kane and I identified with his friend Mm. as well Mm. um, because he had his own trajectory uh, because he came from wealth. He came from where Cain wanted to be, but never could quite fit in. He was never accepted the way his friend was. Right. And, and Julie, your ambivalence about Lawrence, you said, how, how do you feel about Cain? Was that a. Oh, no, it was the masterpiece of the film. Okay. So he grabs Oh Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't really see how you can not find that the ending of that movie emotionally. Moving. Oh, no, no. That, the ending is, is, is effective. I just, I don't know what it is. You know, I, I watch, um, um, uh, touch of evil over and over. I watch touch of evil for pleasure and, and it's a rougher but, and rougher. But Kane is a very funny movie. I mean, it's, yeah. there's a lot of really funny stuff in it and I, it's, I, I, 
I don't know what it is. I keep going back to it. To, you know, I go to learn from it. Whereas, you know. Which well, is, obviously you haven't learned very much. Clearly. Clearly. <laughs> yes. Okay, fine. Let's rub that in. Um, uh, Julie, what's what's next? What have you oh, on mine? Yeah. <clears throat> well, there was a kind of surprising thing that happened in our company, which is that Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers was up for grabs. And <clears throat> so... Um, Roger, having been a great fan of Ingmar Bergman's from early on, uh, said to Paul Koner, uh, I'll take it. And Paul said, no, no, you have to see it first. So we saw it and it was just riveting. And I, I think, you know, looking at the films that have influenced me, obviously several of mine had to do with the plight of women. And in this case, I really couldn't get over. I kind of wondered how men reacted to it, although it was very successful. Roger distributed it and it did well. Um, because it was so insightful about the dark side of women's natures, and particularly being one of three girls, um, how these sisters interacted. But more importantly, that he rooted it in this woman who gave and didn't ask for anything in return. And none of the others was like that. And so that juxtaposition was what really grabbed me early on and carried me through the movie to the Pieta scene at the end. Um, so I think to, to this day, when I think about that film, it's very emotional for me. Um, the performances, those incredible women who had worked with Bergman for so long. And this was like, I don't know, for me, it's his best film. Mm. Yeah, very, very emotional. Well, no, it's interesting that Julie brought up Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers because the next film I was going to mention was Bergman's The Seventh Seal, ah. which I thought was a true masterpiece. We'd been accustomed to seeing knights in armor fighting in the Middle Ages in beautiful technicolor, and everything was clean and lovely and wonderful. And here was this black and white, down and dirty looking film. And I thought, that's the way I think it was in the Middle Ages. They weren't all beautiful and wonderful costumes. They were peasants. They were dirty villages. And I particularly liked of course, the scene at the beginning, which most people still remember, where the knight plays chess with the devil for his soul. And I thought that was a really great opening scene. And then you follow through. Now, uh, to me, the film was a true masterpiece. But in addition, uh, because the scene of the knight playing chess with the devil, a, an American college student as uh, as a student film made a Duff. film yeah Duduva. 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 of the night yes. of the night playing badminton yes they, with yes. the yeah. devil and it was really funny Madeline Kahn. and somebody sent it to yeah. Ingmar Bergman oh, what saying yeah. uh, as i understand saying this is how somebody has is really ruined 
your concept. Oh. But instead, <laughs> Bergman thought it was great. Of course. Well, the thing people he supposedly had a great sense of humor. I mean, uh, well, everybody well, thinks of him as very dour. But... Seven Seals is a very funny movie. That that yeah. I remember as a kid being it was just one of those things, you know, it felt like it felt like, you know, you gotta eat your vegetables, you're gonna have to see the seventh seal. <laughs> I remember I finally saw it. But how come no one told me it's so funny? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. my my uncle, who is not a is not a, a huge film guy. First, when I would go visit him in uh, Essex, Massachusetts as a kid, um, they would every now and then have people over and he would, uh, I guess he'd go to the library and he'd get a 16 millimeter projector because I had a few 16 millimeter films in the library. He would show people Der Duva. Oh. And I still remember being, you know, 10 or 11 years old and, and everybody turning pale when I asked them to explain because there's a scene. I remember it's all in pigeon or phony uh, Swedish. Phony yeah. Swedish, yeah. yeah. And there's a scene where Madeline Kahn offers somebody a cigar and says, would you like a, a phallic symbol? <laughs> and and <laughs> asking people to explain what a phallic symbol was. Great, yeah. great fun. But that's interesting because he picks a sort of, you know, a more male-centric Bergman film. And of course, you go for... Oh, well, that's uh, true. But but yeah. Roger being Roger and Bergman being Bergman um, went a, another direction with Cries and Whispers. So I think Roger is yeah. best to tell you how it ended up on a double bill with Jonathan Demme's movie, H.T. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Hang on. <laughs> well, Would you like me to repeat that? <laughs> Cries and whispers and caged heat. Caged heat. Enter the female jungle of women's prison, USA. A seething hell of steel and stone where bodies behind bars ache with hunger for a man. Any man. Where caged passions ignite in carnal confinement and explode into violence. Caged heat is... Uh, the combination you've been waiting of... for. <laughs> yes, it's in a drive-in in Tennessee. Oh, well, my. Well, here, here's what Wait, happened. That made money, but the intruder didn't. Yeah, well, is the... <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that, that made up for the intruder. <laughs> but what happened, we opened it the way you normally open an art film. Uh -huh. We open in key theaters, first in New York and then Los Angeles, then other major cities, and then in college towns. And these were the major ways you showed such a film. Now, we did this all summer long, and come fall, uh, our other films, the films we were making, uh, played a lot of drive-ins. And I knew that in the fall, the drive-ins had trouble getting films because the major studios at that time had very little faith in them mm. and didn't particularly, they only played them to a certain extent. And we knew the drive-in audience was diminishing because the weather was changing. And I thought, uh, why don't I try Cries and Whispers in a drive-in? Why not? What have I got to lose? And we put it together with Jonathan Demme's uh, first film, A Woman in Prison Picture, yes. Caged Heat. And the picture did average business. And I think we were the only people ever delighted to do average <laughs> business. And I actually got a letter uh, from Bergman. I think I Julia's the letter holding it. We oh, had that Roger has on his wall. Do you want to read it or do you Why want don't me you to? Read it? Ingmar Bergman, Faro, if I pronounce it correctly. Copenhagen, February 19th, 1973. Dear Mr. Corman, I'm very pleased to tell you that my wife and I will be in Cannes from May 18th to 22nd so that I personally can tell you how grateful and satisfied I am for your excellent work with my picture. With warm personal regards, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. 
<laughs> did he know about the double feature? Or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, yeah. You know, he uh, was... Ingmar Bergman <clears throat> movies didn't generally play drive-ins. In Tennessee. You know? yeah. But, but uh, one, yes. of the, one of the perks that, that was Roger was able to give to all these European uh, directors was, I can get you I can get you audiences that you've never had before. Right. Uh, because we can hmm. get your pictures played in places that don't ordinarily play yeah. and he was he it, it, i mean what he better? became the go-to guy yeah. for foreign films which used to be released by united artists and companies right. like that and they and and they all ended up coming to roger well i mean isn't that the dream finally is to yeah. show your movies to people who would normally not see yeah. them I mean, because that's... they played the normal theaters right. that an art film would play right and then as a bonus we put them in more commercial theaters. That's, so uh, <laughs> That's lovely. How much did you have? Much dealings with him? Did you meet him? And no, no. I, I did not, not meet him. In, wow! I thought we met him in Cannes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I was thinking. Uh, yes, we met him in Cannes. Yeah. I was thinking in relationship to the distribution. Oh, yeah, no. Actually, mm-hmm. and you're right. Um, he's considered to be a very dour. As yeah, he was a very funny man. Yes. Yeah. That's wonderful. Oh my God. <laughs> I want to see that double feature now. <laughs> no, you know, thanks to the miracle of home video, you can, you can program it yourself. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. I wonder if they should do that on the Criterion channel. They should run those together. That's right. Along ones. with my trailer. Like, oh, for, <laughs> that got me in the business. Trailer for both or just? Uh... No, I didn't do the trailer for Cries and Whispers, but I did do the trailer for KHT. That, that was your first? It was my yeah. first trailer. Oh. It was uh, an abomination. <laughs> Uh, the trailer? I, I, didn't, the... I didn't know what I was doing. <clears throat> I, I was I was brought out here from New Jersey. I had no, never used a moviola. Uh, I was left in a room with a copy of the film and a moviola and told, <laughs> make a trailer. And I put together the worst god-awful collection of must have run 20 minutes of, of stuff, and I showed it to Roger. And in, in his usual way, he said, uh, well, I, I, we, we, can, we, can, we can work with this. Um, <laughs> What he, what he really said to me the first time I met him was, young man, if I were you, I'd try to get to these things on time. <laughs> but you made Jonathan Demme's career. I don't, the picture did, the, the, the picture made money and, and because of that, uh, people said, well, the trailer must be good. And it's not, it's not a bad trailer, but it well, went, probably way, they were flocking to, it went way over by cries and whispers. I didn't just, <laughs> it didn't always yeah. play with cries and whispers. <laughs> It's because Barbara Steele was in it. That might be my oh, yeah. favorite double feature. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty, pretty good. Wow. Um, uh, give us another one, Julie. What do you got? I, this is my last one on the oh, list. Okay. And, and uh, of all of these, it's the last one I saw, even though it was made in 1966. So when I was at NYU as a chair of the graduate film department, people are always coming to me saying, you, well, you've seen such and such, of course. And then, of course, I'd scramble because I hadn't seen it. And the one film out of all of that that just blew me away and stays with me to this day is Black Girl. I don't know it. Um, well, it's by a Senegalese director. It was made in 1966, Usman Semben. Uh, and it had to do with the effect of, of uh, you know, colonialism, but when the colonists left. And it's a story of a Black girl who goes with a uh, a white French family when they move back to to France from where they have been in Senegal, and for them it's kind of a lark to be there. And and then how she's alienated by the combination of the, you know, the her employers who are upper middle class and of her being 
now in a place where there's a lot of discrimination against blacks, where she doesn't have her family, she has no friends, she has nothing but this all-white house to take care of, whereas <clears throat> she had been a nanny, but now the children are gone, I think, to boarding school, and ultimately um, she commits suicide. But it's the way that he takes you on her journey, that you, you take on this girl's yoke, and you take on her awareness of her surroundings and how it affects her and eventually devastates her. So that my last ending on a high note. (laughs) Yeah. I, I I don't, I need to, um, need to look for that. Have you, uh, it just occurs to me, you might, if you haven't seen it, you'd like, have you seen portrait of a lady on fire this year? No, I haven't. Yeah. It's an amazing, uh, French film, uh, Celine Siama, the director. It's, um, uh, early, no, late 18th century. And it's about a, a woman who's sent to um, paint the portrait of a, a daughter of wealth who doesn't want her portrait painted because it's going to be sent to the man she's never met, oh. who, if he likes the portrait, will marry her. Oh. And it is, um, it's, it's, a, it, I, I really, especially based on your list, I think you'd love it. It's, I look forward to it. Um, yeah. It's brand new. If you guys get screeners, you, it's in your pile. I, it, oh. uh, <clears throat> yes. We did not get a screener for bombshell. I wonder why. <clears throat> I, I would give you mine. Well, no, we saw it. But, oh, you know, um, well, sometimes you don't get, I got two. <laughs> I mean, are you in, uh, are you in the producer's guild? No. Oh, well, see, they, they send out. No, I, oh, I'm in the producer's section of the Academy. Yeah, they send. And it's on the, uh, it's on their digital. Oh, okay. Well, when I figure out how to use Apple TV, I'll get that. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's what, they don't have the, um, the little, uh, uh, water stamp on them. The disclaimer. If if you watch them on the streaming channel. Oh, really? This is, yeah, our, our listeners love this. Uh, Screw you. We've seen them in a theater. Uh, but yeah, they, they don't, most of them at least don't have the, um, for your consideration only. So it's, it's like watching a movie. Huh. Good. Um, Roger, what's next on yours? Well, I have a couple of films that are entirely different, but there is one thing that connects the two and you would not really connect these films. They would be Kurosawa's Rashomon mm. and Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street. The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. What's the coroner got to say? He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. You're going to kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. And what connects the two is that they both had a totally original take on a traditional kind of a story. Mm. Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street, having made a number of horror films myself, I felt these films are all beginning to look alike. People Mm -hmm. are running out of ideas. And his idea that a nightmare becomes reality and can kill, kill you, I thought, 
Wes all by himself has reinvigorated the mm. horror genre with a completely original and brilliant idea. Rashomon takes a killing and reinvigorates it by telling the story from the standpoint of different witnesses to the killing, and they all have a different interpretation as what took place. Now, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is, of course, a straight commercial film. Rashomon would be considered, I think by most people, one of the great art films. So I would have to lean a little heavily towards Rashomon, but it was brilliantly made. The actors were all excellent, and the fact that the actors could play different versions of the characters in different scenes, and Kurosawa was able to set up a slightly different use of the camera and editing in the different scenes. Uh, And also, uh, people were not that much aware of Asian films. To my knowledge, it was the first Asian film, or at least one of the first, that got real recognition in the West. I think it got uh, the grand prize at Cannes uh, and might have gotten best foreign film. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. At least serious ones. Am I, am I, uh, yell at me if I'm wrong. Um, Gate of Hell, I think was a little after that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but think about, you know, art, art film, it, it may be, it's, it's entered the lexicon in a way that, um, there are generations of people who use Rashomon as a reference point who probably don't even know where it comes from. Yes. Let alone that it's a, the film. And, well, maybe they've seen the remake. <clears throat> the Outrage. Oh, right. That's right. Paul Newman, right? Paul Newman? Yeah, yeah. I, for, I had forgotten. Martin Ritt. It doesn't quite work. I think it traumatized It me. doesn't quite work. <laughs> yeah. But it's an interesting attempt. Yeah, yeah. And, and Wes's movie is, is uh, it's interesting how you, how you put that, because I remember seeing it and just thinking, yeah, there was just sort of something about it that, that was fresh and, and interesting yes. and new, but, but um, yeah. And it gave us a, a new movie monster, which is yes. Freddy Krueger, who was essentially really the last horror actor. You know, after Vincent Price and Karloff and all everyone passed away, the whole idea of tailoring movies toward a particular kind of uh, actor who could play those kind of parts right. kind of went away, except for Robert England, who managed to, I think, sort of coast on the leftovers of just uh, saying, yeah, well, you know, let's, let's remake there. the Phantom of the Opera with Robert England. Right. Because we don't have anybody else who's known to be in that uh, in that kind of film. And, and no one has ever risen to take their places. It's true. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who's... Uh, no, there isn't. I mean, they tried to, they were thinking of remaking Theater of Blood, and, and in fact, they did a, uh, I think, a musical version of it on stage with Jim Broadbent, but they could never get a movie off the ground because there there's nobody to play the part. I mean, Vincent Price brought with him so much history yeah. to that character yeah. that it doesn't. it really doesn't work with anybody else, and it's a wonderful film because of him. I, I feel like Nicolas Cage could fill that slot. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a good idea. But I would then come to actually my last film that I would mention. Oh, the one you were teasing. Which I said, the one I would keep. When Sight and Sound sent out that uh, uh, questionnaire to the various directors, I was the only one who chose as my favorite film of all time, The Battleship Potemkin. Ah, okay. And they wrote me and said, because uh, uh, I knew the people there, and they said, Roger, of all the directors, you're the only one who chose a battleship Potemkin. Really? Would you write an article for us 
on the battleship Potemkin, which I did. But I think Potemkin was a pivotal picture in filmmaking. Eisenstein, I think it was made around 1920, give or take a year or two. We were still working with primitive techniques. Griffith had introduced the close-up, which changed filmmaking from just photographing like a stage play to cutting with people. But Eisenstein went a, a giant step further and introduced really a modern version of editing that is still used today. Yeah. His sequence, the Odessa step sequence, uh, where the troops march down the steps and they are killing people as they go. Yeah. And the cutting back and forth and the whole concept of the film about a failed mutiny, but you are with the mutineers, you know they are right, we know the Tsar's troops are wrong, it was obviously made by a, an early communist regime. But I thought it dealt with the subject brilliantly, and I thought brought you back to, this is the way it was, just as I said earlier, about Ingmar Bergman's Seventh Seal. I think this is the way the real, the Middle Ages were. I think this is the way the world existed at that time. Mm. And I just think it is a brilliant film from the acting, from the structure, from the photography, from to the editing. I think it was the first modern film. Yeah, it's funny because I, it, that, that is the movie when I first saw I had the emotional reaction that I never had with Citizen Kane for some reason. Um, but, but, uh, yeah. When it was, so on the, on the sight and sound list, were you asked to name one film or was it a, a list of, uh, we listed them all, but it listed but you were the, one, the one, the one that no got one the best votes. That. I think I, as usual, it was either Citizen Kane or right. Lawrence of Arabia, but right. down at the bottom with one, one vote, vote was Battleship yeah. Potemkin. Good for I, you. I would yes. suggest, uh, I would suggest the possibility of other reasons that Battleship Potemkin was your choice. One, you were in the Navy. Uh, That's right. So, as, and I thought about mutiny every day. <laughs> yeah, you'd always been rebellious, and uh, you know, thinking back to our knowing each other before we worked together, before you called me when I was at the LA Times and said, "What can you find out in what was called the morgue then, which would be mm -hmm. archives today, about um, the Hell's Angels?" Because I'm thinking of making a movie about them. And I called him back about 30 minutes later and said, don't have anything to do with them. <laughs> but um, so, yes, your rebellious nature. I mean, you went straight forward even when, you know, Big Otto was threatening to snuff you out. But uh, I got along then, wonderfully with the angels, but, except for the fact that they wanted to kill me. Yeah. Ah, well, that was yeah. a minor detail. Yes. But the, uh, but the other thing I would say is as far as the... Um, the structure of the film, you know, very clearly structured. I mean, there's bam, bam, bam. And the structure of the editing, I would think, would have appealed to your engineering background. Oh, interesting. Anyway, very I possibly. just suggest all Yes, of that. I hadn't thought of that, but very possibly, because that was clearly very, very well thought out and planned. Right. There's a lot of work that's improvised, yeah. and I'm sure there was some improvisation in the picture. But it really looks as if this picture has been worked out shot by shot. Well, I think also just with the, the size of the cameras and the bulkiness, she would have to have worked out everything yes. down to the last degree in a way that you don't have to if you're shooting it all on an iPhone. So, 
Um, wow. Well, um, but the current uh, the current sight and sound uh, leader is now Vertigo. It's now Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a, which is a, interesting because it's a film that was roundly dismissed when it was new. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, and and still has its detractors, but um, <laughs> but nonetheless, just raise my hand. <laughs> it's it's I, for me, it's the only Hitchcock film that that uh, it's got no text. The subtext is the text, whereas kind of what you were saying about the Intruder, I I, I like that to be uh, I like to be brainwashed. I don't like to be lectured. I guess and Vertigo just. I think like, the reason it it's supplanted Citizen Kane is because they both have scores by Bernard Herrmann. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Are you, do you do you share that assessment of vertigo the two of you are you uh... i i don't get the hue and cry over oh, vertigo yes yeah i'm all about the music though yeah so. oh sure no it's, it's lovely to look at the color and are you a no i think vertigo is very good but i simply class it as, classify it as one of many yeah. very good films by hitchcock yeah yeah and that sort of mystified me um, before I wrap, I want to, I want to just tell a story. I'm sure you don't remember it, but, uh, I want to pat myself on the back a little bit using this is his podcast. <laughs> it's ours. Uh, we, we, we met, um, uh, I had the, the privilege of being nominated for a scripter award, uh, for history of violence. And you were at those awards. It was the first time I'd ever met you. And I introduced myself and, uh, I had always wanted to tell you about this cause I, there was no way you could possibly have known about this movie, but I had written and directed a little movie called infested a few years earlier which, and I, it was a horror film. And I told you, and it was a, essentially I had taken the big chill and remade it as a horror film. And you said, oh, I wish I'd thought of that. And <laughs> that was one of the greatest accolades I've ever gotten in my life. So <laughs> wait a minute, it's, it's still a viable thought. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, go ahead. Do it, do it, do it right. No one's seen mine. It's, uh, I give it to you. Um, <laughs> but uh, Julie, Roger, thank you so very much for uh, coming in and ushering in the 20s with us. Uh, on the movies that made me, it's been, it's been a real, real pleasure to talk to you and to walk through these films with you. So thank you. Thank you, Josh and Joe. Thanks. Oh, very good. good. Thank you. Look forward to other of your work. Thank you. And happy new year. Yes. Happy 2020. Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. Official podcast of trailersfromhell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.